welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Well, it's good to be back with you again and to continue our conversation in this uh, amazingly challenging and relevant book to the world that we're living in right here, right now. Um, And it's fascinating, isn't it? Here's a book that was written 2,000 years ago that we have been trying to um, uh, kind of mine for hints and suggestions as to how the world is going to end, etc. And of course, John is not even remotely interested in those kinds of questions. He has something else in mind when he has this um, revelation, this unpacking of who Jesus is. And so his purposes need to drive our agenda. We ought not look at the book of Revelation as kind of a a calendar, a countdown clock ticking towards midnight, as much as we need to look at it for what John intended it to be, a series of visions, a series of dreams almost, a series of things that he has seen in almost grotesque form, echoing images from the Old Testament, uh, from from the uh, Roman Empire, Greek mythology, all of these influences come together in this book, and and his primary purpose is to celebrate the lordship of Jesus Christ, to magnify him, and with that, to say to the churches, seven particularly, but the church at large, that Jesus is on the throne, the end of time has already been determined in terms of final outcomes. Uh, We are in this interim period now, and the challenges that he describes uh, as we are awaiting kind of final judgment in time uh, are considerable for the church, the temptations, the distractions, but also clearly the mission of the church is laid laid out. So last week, we ended with this um, horrific uh, vision of... um, the, 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 the kind of the, the, the initial uh, outpouring of judgment in chapters uh, 8 and 9 and the heartbreaking um, outcome that there was no repentance, there was no response. People kind of looked at what had happened and said, well, as long as I wasn't in the third that got wiped out, I'm still okay. Um, and this, of course, is not just, we ought not take these things uh, literally. John didn't intend them that way. This is kind of a, um, a journey into the uh, imagination of apocalyptic. So we see these almost like this grow, um, graphic novel uh, or, or Marvel comics or Saturday morning cartoons, that kind of an image where we see all of these fantastical images colliding, moving, shifting back and forth. And it's important for us as we move into chapter 10 to know that what John sees next is not what we ought to expect to happen next. John is, we faded to commercial break at the end of nine, and now we come back in and we're a little disoriented because it's a different take on much the same scene. He has made the case in chapters really five, six, seven, eight, and nine that judgment is coming 
and that there is a reason for it. Uh, and throughout all of this, to celebrate the lordship and the sovereignty of Jesus is his purpose as a way of comforting the church. So here we are now. I'm going to read the whole text again, chapters 10 and 11. It's a lot. Bear with me. I think it's worth hearing. Again, this is God's word. Uh, what I say about it, not so much. Uh, so let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse 1, chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars, and he was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, and gave a loud shout like a roar of a lion. And when he had shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke, and the seven thunders, when they had spoken, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said. Don't write it down. Then the angel I had seen, standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from the heavens spoke to me once more, go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the scroll, little scroll, and he said, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court, don't measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees, the two lampstands, they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out from their mouths, devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. They have power to turn the waters into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them, and their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. 
But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. And at that very hour there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. Survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was past. The third woe is coming. Then the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you. Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come, and the time has come for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets, your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. There came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. It's quite a, a series of visions. He begins with this seeing of another mighty angel like he saw previously in chapter 5 coming down, this representative, this messenger, and in his hands a small scroll, a little scroll. Remember the large scroll, the seven seals. Now he's been given access to this smaller, more digestible piece that he can manage, that he can carry, that is with his, um, within his capacity. He hears the thunder and, 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 and the, the angel comes with the full authority of the Lord, the God, the creator of the universe. He stands feet on one, uh, the sea, and feet on the land. The point here is very clearly, this is somebody we need to pay very close attention to and, and, and attend to what he's doing. He comes with the full authorization from the throne of God. He hears seven thunders, but is told not to write them down. Apparently, there is much more to what is going on in this moment and in this world than even John is prepared to lay out on the table for us or for his own audience. I think that's worthwhile remembering and why it's important for us that we take seriously what John is trying to do in this book and not make it do what it's not ever intended to do. Um, and so he has this invitation to take this small scroll with this warning. It'll taste sweet in your mouth like the Word of God always does. But when it digests, when the implications of it become clear, it will turn sour in your belly. It, it will be a, a, a heart, heartbreak, heartburn of a word because you have to go and prophesy. You have to go and, 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 and speak to many peoples, many languages, many nations, uh, and, 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 and kings. 
But before he does that, and in preparation for doing that, he is given a measuring rod. He is to take the measure of the temple of God. Remember, by this time, we're at the tail end of the first century. Jerusalem, where the temple was, has been annihilated. Not one stone left of that temple on another. So clearly, it's not the temple in Jerusalem to which John is referring. And in fact, in this vision, we are now coming full circle to how the church understood itself as the temple of the Holy Spirit, as the indwelling place of God. Paul says this, Peter says this uh, over and over again, that, that we are his temple. We are the dwelling place of God in and by the Spirit. So he is now taking for purposes of protection, the measure of the people of God. Please notice this happens every single time judgment is about to come. He wants his church to know all hell is about to break loose. No, not true. All heaven is about to break loose and it will be experienced in catastrophic ways by people who live on the earth. But I want you to know, I know who you are. I know where you are. I've got you measured out. I've got you sealed in one vision. I've got you protected. Uh, even though you might get hurt, you will not be ultimately harmed. This is a, a perennial theme uh, that, that, that is intended to encourage the church. Even though they're undergoing severe persecution, don't quit. God knows your name. He knows where you are. He's with you in the middle of this. And it is critical for us, even today, as we hear this word to remember, because this vision stretches into our current moment, doesn't it? It's not a one and done. It's an ongoing vision. So he has this, this awareness. 42 months, is, we're not supposed to count down, and you do the math. It's 1,260 days. It's three and a half years. Uh, the point is not one, two, three, done. It's, it's this, um, a, a period of time is set. That's the idea. A period of time is set. It's half of seven. It's half of the completion that happens with seven. And in this period of time, the, the using the ideas of Ezekiel and Zechariah, remember the Old Testament informs so much of this text, uh, this, this, the people of God are protected, measured out in some way, and now these witnesses, these, 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 these tellers of truth, these prophets, begin to speak to the world. And again, this is not just for these 42 months. This is a period of time that has, it continues into its current, into our current stage. In other words, these witnesses that we will come to here are the two olive trees from the Old Testament, two lampstands from the New Testament, remember of the seven churches, two, seven churches, two uh, of the lampstands were still burning, right? These two lampstands. So in other words, John is saying the witness of the church, the witness of the true Israel will be like the ministry and he's going to identify these two guys by their actions. Moses the law, Elijah, the prophets, turning water into blood, calling down fire. You, you get the image. He's trying to say that this is a coherent witness to the glory of God, coherent testimony from the beginning of, of, of time, law, prophets, now the church, 
is this is this witness that bears the truth, bears the 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 supernaturally supported. They are able to call down wonders in support of their mission. The 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 word is going going forward for a period of time, but when they are finished their testimony, and, and part of the point here is that there will come a time when the voice of the church falls silent, when the voice of the witnesses falls silent. This is not some future event to which we look. This is the ongoing re- reality within the which the church currently does its ministry. We are the ones who are bearing witness. And sooner or later, these two witnesses had their voices fall silent, and then were attacked by the beast from the abyss, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes, or probably no, next week, attacks them and overpowers them and kills them. And there is rejoicing in the world that this voice of the law and the prophets, the testimony of the church has finally fallen silent. We can sin without shame. We can sin. We can do whatever we want without being corrected. We don't need these morality police calling us to attention and our accountability before God. And they have a party. They celebrate the death of these witnesses only after three and a half days of universal celebration. You catch the imagery here. This is not a literal, this is a figurative, symbolic celebration that ends, bang, three and a half days as the two come to life and are caught up in a cloud into the heavens, both Moses and Elijah, similar stories, right? Uh, And are, are, are caught up, the church, even though crushed, and this is an ongoing repetitive pattern, in places where it appeared that the church had been crushed irrevocably, their voice had gone silent, there was no place that the voice of the church could be heard. You think of China, for example, in the 50s when, when the communist revolution occurred and Christians were executed en masse, where you think of Japan uh, with, with the uh, uh, execution of, of, of numerous missionaries, and you think... Well, there the church is gone. It's, 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 it's dead. And the, the rulers celebrate. And it's a premature celebration because the church, it's like nailing jello to the wall. Every time you think you've got it down, it springs up again with greater strength and greater power and greater energy. And in such a case, even though the church is crushed, it rises again and its martyrdom And restoration becomes a powerful testimony, even more powerful than the testimony of the two witnesses, even more powerful than the words, is the life of testimony that eventuates out of this martyrdom and restoration. And the outcome? 7,000 people. Earthquake, remember this is not, again, a literal earthquake. This is a kind of a cosmic shaking. 7,000 people died, which we are told is a tenth of the city. Please notice again, as hard as it is, this is still mercy breaking through. Not everybody died. A tenth died. 
And in both of these numbers, the 7,000 and the 10th, you hear the echoes of the judgments uh, that are reflected in the Old Testament uh, of law and, and prophets. Elijah said there's 7,000 prophets led. Uh, the story of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, one in, if we could just find 10 men, here we have those numbers that John is, is saying there is a loss. It's a huge loss, but it's not a final and full loss. There are still nine-tenths of the city left, still m more than the 7,000. And notice what happens. Notice what happens. 7,000 people killed. Survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Finally, the witness of the church, the witness of these, these, these two primary witnesses has borne fruit. And, 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 and even though it was a catastrophic loss in the martyrdom, and the, the, but with the martyrdom and the, and the, and the raising to uh, resurgent life of the church, all kinds of folks turned to give glory to God. They repented. They gave glory to God. That martyr witness will succeed. And this is really critical because remember, the church are the people of the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth. The temptation always is for the church to take other weapons the church to uh, engage in other practices, but it is through the following of the sacrifice of the lamb that the church will have its most powerful and uh, uh, heard voice. We have to get in our heads and hearts the painful reality that the only way we can be disciples of Jesus in this current moment is not to give up on the things that Jesus counted on to save the world self-sacrificing love. And then we are ushered in in that 15th verse to this new vision as the seventh trumpet sounds. We are caught up and again, uh, many times this happens, right? In this, in this book, we are right now on the, on the front seat looking over the balcony almost onto the, into, the, into the heavens and we're seeing there the throne room of God and listen to this, to this, a song that is sung, uh, uh, it, memorialized, if you will, by Handel and the Messiah, the kingdom of the world has become, has reverted to and become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Please notice what John is saying. This has happened. This is not future. This is not some moment somewhere down the line. This is the current reality that John is being invited into, that we are being invited into to have a, a, a ticket to this celebration, this coronation. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And then there is this worship. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is, excuse me, who is and who was. Please notice, not who is to come. There's usually those three phrases, who was, who is, and who is to come. But this one's gone. Who was and who is. This is an ongoing reality. The is to come has come. The Lord is seated on the throne. Philippians chapter 2 celebrates the victory of the Lamb through self-sacrifice. John 
lets us in on this vision. We, you have begun to reign. You have taken your power and the nations which were angry, your wrath has come and the time has come for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets, for your people who revere your name, both great and small. The time has also come for destroying those who destroy the earth. So here we are invited into this vision that is currently taking place. This is not the end of time. This is now outside of time. This is a current moment. The risen Christ has taken his throne. I need to emphasize that because this is why John keeps referring back to this over and over and over again. Because the church still has some stuff to go through. John's churches, our church, still has some stuff to go through. In the millennia that follow, this vision has to be our true north star. We have to remember, no matter what else we see, what else we experience in this hard and broken world, Jesus is on the throne. The kingdom of this world has become his kingdom. And he will reign forever and ever. This is the way of the Lamb. This is what victory through self-sacrificing love looks like. And then John is invited into the temple, which is open, and sees the Ark of the Covenant, this place of meeting, this place where the people of God meet with God. And as this place of meeting unpacks for him, there are flashes of thunder, uh, lightning, and, 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 and rolling peals of thunder, and earthquake, and severe hailstorm. Uh, we're about to move in to some, some pretty drastic visions. But the key as we land this morning is to remember our role in this, in this season, in this current moment, is to bear witness to the lamb slain by doing the life the way the lamb slain would do life. We aren't to get caught up in the machinations of history. We are to bear witness, to give testimony to the light and life that God has given us. It might not work in real time. We might be hurt. We might die. But in our martyrdom, the seed sown is is fertilized and brings forth fruit. There is now a more vibrant church in China as a result of that persecution, perhaps, than any other place in the world. You can't kill the church. Jesus has promised us this. So our task in the meantime is not to give up hope and not to give up the word of our testimony. We'll talk some more about this next week. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we land this powerful text with this stunning vision captured so eloquently by Handel and his Messiah. Lord, that chorus rings through my ears as we celebrate with him this truth, this reality, that the kingdom of the world has become your kingdom. And we want to be among those who bow down and celebrate your coronation day. Lord, here we are in time knowing that this event has taken place and influences what we do here and now. 
So please help us to keep clearly in mind what this vision calls us to, to be faithful and true witnesses, to keep giving our testimony in love, to keep counting on your supernatural empowerment of us in the giving of our testimony, and to leave outcomes and results in your hands. We ask this, Lord, in your name. Amen. God bless you, saints. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.